This episode of The Orthodox Conundrum deals with the Chaim Walder situation and the topic of sexual abuse of children. Please be aware that our discussion may be disturbing or triggering to some listeners. The abuser brings them to their level. Like first, they'll let them, let's say, watch a video on their phone. And this is a child that's not allowed to watch videos on smartphones. And they say, okay, well, now we watch the video on the phone and now we're going to do this. And the abuser abuses them and then says, well, don't tell anyone because you'll get in trouble for watching a video on my phone. And the child's mind, the child does not understand the vast difference between the quote unquote crime of watching a video on a smartphone that they weren't supposed to do and the crime of sexually abusing a child. In their mind, we both are rule breakers now. We're both going to get in trouble. I can't tell anyone about this. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Just over a week ago, we heard the very disturbing news that the well-known and influential children's author, Chaim Walder, was accused by multiple people of sexually abusing several girls between the ages of 13 and 20. Apart from his celebrity as an author, Walder has worked as a therapist and is the founder of the Center for the Child and Family in B'nai Brak, a talk show host and columnist. After these allegations were published in Haaretz and other media outlets, his newspaper and radio station have discontinued working with him, while numerous stores have stopped selling all of his books. Shana Aronson, the executive director of Magain, had heard of these allegations before they became public, and I spoke with her both about the Chaim Walder situation, as well as about how we can protect children from sexual abuse. We talked about what parents should and should not do, what are the yellow and red flags they should notice, and if they notice such warning signs, what they should do next. Shana Aronson has a degree in psychology and certification in educational guidance counseling, training in abuse prevention with at-risk children and youth, and IFS therapy. Shana's past work experience includes mentoring at-risk youth through several educational programs. Shana then served as the assistant director of SOFIA, a residential therapeutic home for adolescent girls at risk. She later worked as a social services coordinator for Magain Child Protective Services, where she supported families whose children had been physically and sexually abused before joining Jewish Community Watch as a case manager. She is now the executive director of Magain. Outside of her work running Magain, Shana's advocacy roles include volunteering as a coach to religious brides who are survivors of interpersonal trauma and birth assistant to women with histories of sexual and physical abuse. Shana Aronson, thank you very much for joining me again today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Sure. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about protecting our children from sexual predators, knowing what the warning signs are and what to do when a parent notices these warning signs. And the immediate impetus for this episode, no surprise to anyone, the recent allegations against the well-known Haredi author Chaim Walder, who's written numerous volumes of Yiladim Misaprim Alatzmam, translated into English as Kids Speak. So you'll notice I use the term Shana allegations, and that was deliberate. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions which inevitably arise is the question of due process, innocent until proven guilty. I know that that refers to the legal system and has nothing to do with the court of popular opinion and is irrelevant when it comes to protecting our children. Still, if the allegations against Heimwalder or anyone else are unfounded, then his life has been ruined for no reason. So my first question for you is, how do we make sure that when we publicize these names before the perpetrators have had their day in court, how do we know we're not potentially making a tragic and disastrous mistake? 
That is a very good question. I think that um, there's really a question of the, the follow-up question is where are these allegations coming from? I do think that in terms of, you know, if we're talking about what action people should be taking, what action parents should be taking, I think there's a difference between if an anonymous allegation, let's say, is posted online in an anonymous blog where nobody can really tell where the source is, where we have absolutely no idea where these claims originated, your, your response is going to, and legitimately so, be different than if it is just coming from uh, through law enforcement, obviously, or through the mainstream media. And um, and sometimes, you know, and obviously those two things are different. The standards are, are different. And what that means in terms of, you know, when you when we say alleged and when we say when someone once someone is convicted, of course, um, there are differences there. But anyone who's familiar with the standards of mainstream media investigative journalism and more specifically the legal departments of those same media knows that the, the standards are high enough. They have to be quite sure that they're not going to be sued. Or if they are going to be, if they if they are sued, that they have the evidence to back up their claims soundly and like thoroughly in court. Mm-hmm. I've worked with a lot of journalists on things like this, and I've worked with their lawyers on a lot of things like this. And I can tell you that it is a lengthy and you know process of deliberations and vetting and checking, and it's very easy. And we see a lot of a lot of the, well, this came from an anti-religious source and it came from, you know, yes, they're journalists, but they're, but there's some sort of vendetta here. And there's some sort of, that's just not based in factual, you know, that, that's not factual. That's not based in, in reality in terms of what goes into those kind these kinds of reports. I see. So if you have allegations coming from uh, sources like this, sources where you know that there's been, there's been thorough vetting, um, then the level of, of caution that you need to take at this point really is, is, it's going to be higher than if you just sort of, sort of heard that like an anonymous rumor and you have no idea where it came from and you know no reason to think that it's been checked out or anything like that. Okay. Let me ask about the Chaim Valder case in particular. From your experience, and you've obviously been involved in this for years, do the allegations seem credible to you? Yes. Well, let me, let me clarify that. This particular, the article, the Haaretz article that came out last week, um, we were not involved in that particular article meaning in the investi- their investigation, vetting the three victims that they interviewed. With that said, though, we know, the, we know those journalists. Those are the same journalists that we worked with on the Meshi Zahav case for about nine months. So I, I know their process, and I know that they are professionals, and they are thorough, and I have no question that they did similar work here in terms of the sensitivity and the vibration in their vetting. And additionally, Members of the McGain staff have over the years been in contact uh, with alleged victims of Chaim Walder. So this was not a surprise to us. We were aware of this. Up until now, none of those victims were prepared emotionally or in any way to talk on the record, off the record. I mean, really much, mm-hmm. much at all about what had happened, certainly not to go to the police um, or even speak to the media. I have two questions on that particular point. My first question is, does that mean that there are as best as you understand it, more than three victims. Only three came yes. forward? Yes. Okay. And then my second question is something which I hear all the time, and I'm sure it's obvious to a lot of people, but I think a lot of people don't understand why. When you say, certainly not to the police, they're not willing to speak on the record, what are they afraid of? Why won't they go to the police? They are afraid of all of the things that victims are so often afraid of, which is either not being believed 
um, having their reputation dragged through the mud, people finding out that it's them, having their shidduchim affected, their families affected, their children's ability to get into school affected, um, their general communal standing and, uh, and general reputation. Um, yeah, I, to, to name a few reasons. Let's move on to something else on the same topic. One of the scariest parts of the story is the fact that Chaim Valder, by definition, by his profession, by what he does, had access to children. That's what makes it in some ways so additionally insidious. It's not just a famous person. It's someone who that's his entire job. Mm-hmm. So this might sound like a shallow question, but how do we trust anybody with our kids? How can we ever trust anyone who's dealing with kids to be honest and to be fair and to be not doing something terrible? Well, I think that the, that question is, I'm not sure that's actually the right question because it's not, it, it isn't really a question of how can we trust anyone because it isn't about trust. Um, we can trust somebody completely and absolutely and still stand by the boundaries and standards that we've set. There is no reason that our children need to be spending time alone in an isolated situation with an adult. Just well, no what about a therapist that. or a doctor? Even a therapist, that's not in isolation. With the doctor, there are rules about either having another, another medical provider, a nurse in the room, a parent in the room. Um, therapy obviously is a little different in terms of a parent being in the room, but there's no reason that the doors should be closed in a way that you know no one can walk in. Where there's there's a difference between privacy and isolation. And that's a very important distinction um, because you know when we have when we send our children to be tutored for their bar mitzvahs or you know whatever whatever the various scenarios are where our children are going to be alone, so to speak, with an adult or somebody. With, where there's a power imbalance, there is a difference between the fact that they need some level of, you know, there, there needs to be some quiet. They're not going to be able to concentrate if they're sitting in the middle of a park and they won't have privacy if we're talking about therapy. But there does not, certainly does not need to be a room where the door is closed, where no one is going to be entering, where the building is deserted, where there there's there are ways to do this where it is understood that people are, are coming in and out occasionally. There is privacy, but absolutely they are, they are not isolated. The child knows that. The adult knows that everyone involved is just very well aware of that. And that's a standard that really we should all be holding to. Okay. Privacy versus isolation. Exactly. Keep that in mind. Yes. The fact that Walder, and this was actually was very interesting to me because one of the things that he apparently claimed in the polygraph that he took was that he was never in isolation with any uh, girls that he was treating, seeing. And when that came out, Numer- I mean, I saw numerous posts online of women saying, what do you, what, what, yes, yes, he was. I was alone with him. Like I went in for therapy. We were completely alone. He didn't abuse me, but I was alone with him. So if he's clearly lying blatantly about but this. Did he pass that polygraph test? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And yet well, people are giving evidence that it's not true. Right. And there's a reason that polygraph tests are not admissible in, in court because there are uh, many people, personality types and whatnot that can pass polygraphs. Mm-hmm. So in any case, that's not my area of expertise, but, but yes, he did, he did pass, he did pass the polygraph. That's something that's been talked about a lot in the media. And one of the questions on that polygraph was, was he ever alone with women? And he said, no. And that's kind of like, you know, it, it raised questions, I think for a lot of people that, that had been inclined to maybe believe him. But then once they realized, well, he's blatantly lying about that, so what else of this is he lying about? That's, you know, raised a lot of questions. I want to raise something which someone asked me yesterday. On the one hand, I have my own answer to this question, but I am curious what you would say about this, Shana. At what point when somebody does something that is improper, I'm using that term as a very broad term, 
does it rise to the level of cancellation? In other words, nowadays we live in a world, people talk about cancel culture, and I think it's a big problem. If someone does something, I don't know what that thing is, but there are certain crimes or thought crimes or things you say that if you say them, you can no longer be in polite company. You can no longer be accepted and your career is basically ruined. I am not at all suggesting that sexual abuse doesn't rise to that level. That's not what I'm saying. Of course it does. But how do we know when that line has been crossed? Let's say somebody gives someone a hug that the person was uncomfortable with. Do we cancel that person now when it may have been very innocent? Maybe it wasn't. How do we know where that line is drawn? Wow, that's a that's a big question. It is a big <laughs> because question. It's, it, that involves, I mean, because like you said, I think it's clear that this situation would rise to that level. Absolutely. You know, wherever that bar is, this is clearly above it. Where Where is that bar? I'm not sure that there's a black and white answer to that. I don't think there's like sort of sort of magic line where, okay, once you've done this, that's the line where we cancel you. So I think it's a, probably a more nuanced nuanced answer. And I think that a lot of that nuance sort of lies in the question of how does whatever this behavior or action that this person did, how, where does it demonstrate in terms of who they are today? Is this the kind of thing that like they were like a stupid teenager and they did something really truly offensive, but they were 18 they years not, old. Yes. They were 18 years old. They were 17 years old. Um, they fully acknowledge that this was an incredibly stupid thing to do. It is not something that they would ever do today. It's not something that they would condone today. Um, it was 20 years ago. Now, if they raped someone 20 years ago, then it's a little hard. Well, I wouldn't rape someone today, but I, that's, I think that's above the line. If they made an inappropriate joke, there is probably some space between saying stupid things as a teenager and the actions and behaviors of hurting another person. Not that certain kinds of jokes and certain kind of comments are not incredibly hurtful to people or whole populations of people, obviously, um, and should not be condoned. But 18-year-olds sometimes say incredibly stupid things um, that they absolutely do not stand by years later. So canceling someone in their current position as when they're 35 years old and trying to you know, do good and do better in the world. So I think an apology should be made. I think there should be space for that. I think that if there's something to be learned, it, that should happen. But I personally don't feel the need to remove that person from the public space if this was really something that, you know, is not a reflection of who they are now. You see, in our situation with Chaim Walder, it ticks all the boxes. Apart from the fact that the crimes themselves are heinous, it's also the fact that he used the very thing that he is known for in order to commit these crimes. So there's nothing to talk about. I just want to make clear, I'm not talking about his situation, but someone asked me about where that line is drawn in other situations. I realize it's a very, very broad question. Let me move on to another thing. I want to ask you one more thing about Chaim Valder in this particular case. How do you recommend we talk to our kids about this particular case, kids who may have gotten a lot out of his books? Should we toss those books out? Should we allow those books to remain on our shelves? If our kids want to know how can they read a book by somebody who did these things, what do we say? So I, I have a couple thoughts about this. First of all, the majority of Walder's books, he did not write himself. He wrote based on, they, they are the stories that people shared with him. So I do feel differently about his books than I do many other alleged or convicted rapists and predators that have come out, you know, that, were, that had, uh, had contributed, whether books or whatever content to the public space, because this, these are not his words. This is not, you know, his Torah, so to speak. This is not his thoughts. These are the stories that he was, he was the conduit to sharing. So I do feel a little bit differently. I personally don't, don't own, my children don't have Prime Alder books because I have known about these allegations for mm -hmm. a while um, because of the information that came to the organization. So I have not bought them for quite some time. Um, if I did have them, I certainly wouldn't buy any more. 
But if I did have them, I, I don't know if I would throw all of them out at this point. I think that I would cover the covers. That was personally my thought because I know what it does for victims and not just the victims of that particular abuser, but all victims when they see it, an alleged high profile abuser who is still get, being given sort of like public space. It's extremely triggering. It's extremely painful. And it's a slap in the face. So I would cover the covers so that his name is not there, but I wouldn't feel the need to necessarily get rid of the books if they, these are, again, if we're talking about the books that he wrote that which, which were other stories. With that said, I, that would also depend on the age of the children that we're talking about, because if the child is old enough to understand that this man is accused of having done some really terrible things and, and hurting children that trusted him, then it, it might just be a good message to, to tell them that we, don't, we just don't want to read these books anymore. And with all of that said, I think that right now, there are a lot of people that are understandably uncomfortable with the fact that like, there are still a lot of questions there. It's hard to follow everything that's going on in the media. People don't know, is this three allegations? Is there 20? They're not sure. It's unclear. They don't, unless you really, really follow Israeli radio and, you know, all the different media outlets, it's hard to keep on top of. So they're not clear, like, how credible is this? And and I think that's legitimate. And that needs to be, you know, sometimes there's the sense that like, we all have to immediately jump on board. There's a difference between saying, I believe victims and saying, well, like, I just started hearing the story. I, I'm not even sure of exactly where it's coming from. I'm kind of confused. Like, I want to figure that out. Um, and then defending the abuser saying, no, no, there's no way this is true, certainly mm-hmm. publicly, which is unacceptable. So you can, you can say like, to yourself, you know, I'm an, I'm a reserve judgment. I'm just not sure what to do here yet. There's, it's so confusing what's going on, in which case, Put his books aside. I don't know. Put them in the machsan. You can, you know, if you're not ready to throw them out, but you don't want them sort of out on your shelves at this point. I think that's that's really legitimate. And put them somewhere while while you as you sort of gather information. I think that that's all valid. And I also think that there is there isn't really one right answer on this question. I think that sometimes people think like there is. Well, you you have to do this or you have to do that. Otherwise, you are a bad person or you just don't get it. Or and I don't think it's that's it's not necessarily. Psych. Yeah, I don't think there's like a, a black and white, you know, what exactly should we do? You know, is there is there a number of seconds in which you have to switch the channel on the radio if if an accused rapist music comes on? Like, I don't know if it's five seconds, that's it. You're like over this. <laughs> this right. of it. It's not quite so clear. But I think that what needs to be at the forefront of our minds is sensitivity to the victims. That's really what always has to come first is how in this how how whatever decision making I'm, I'm making here. How am I going to be sensitive to to all victims, of which there are many, many, many in my life and everyone's life that this is really difficult for? And also, what kind of messages do I want to give my kids? I'd like to ask you about that in terms of messaging to our kids. What do we do? If they don't ask about it, do we leave it alone? Or do we use this as an opportunity and say, I want to talk to you about the author of that book that you and I really enjoy and explain to them what happened? I think that, first of all, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of raising issues, of parents raising issues, because I think more, way more often than not, um, our kids get, they're, they're hearing about stuff way more than we realize they're hearing about stuff. And I would personally rather my kids hear about it from me than from somebody else, such as one of their really sweet but really clueless young friends mm-hmm. um, that kind of has picked up bits and pieces and doesn't really know what they're talking about, which happens in a lot of different areas and subjects, as we know. So, you know, I'd like to be the one to sort of start that conversation. Um, But this is specifically talking about in this situation where it's so well known, it's so publicized that we can be pretty confident they're going to hear about this. They're going to hear about it in school. They're going to hear about it from their friends. Somewhere or another, they're going to hear about it. 
Um, so let me be the one that brings it up to them first and lets them know. Certainly if I have books on my shelf and now I'm putting them away, I might need to, you know, I need to offer some explanation why I'm doing that and take this as a teaching moment because our lives are, we talk about this a lot, we meaning the McGinn uh, sort of educational team when we do workshops for parents about just using, finding and using teachable moments. There are so many moments in our lives that we don't even realize are just such great opportunities for talking about talking about personal safety without necessarily ever really talking about personal safety. What I mean is, you know, talking about privacy, talking about bodily autonomy or mental autonomy, just using all the different opportunities that, that arise to do that. You're, you're creating, you're laying a groundwork. You, you, there are so many ways to, to talk about and educate your children about, you know, protecting themselves from sexual abuse without ever talking about sexual abuse. So this is one of those opportunities, obviously here, this is sexual abuse. So that's, but, um, and, it, and of course it's, it's age dependent. You know, you have to, we want to talk to our kids at, at, at a, on, a, on a level that's going to be, um, that isn't going to freak them out. That's very important. And every child is different. So it's not like we can say, okay, all eight-year-olds, you do X. It really depends on the maturity level of your child and, you know, all of those things. And of course, the initial discomfort of raising these issues in this particular case, that's mitigated a bit because they're already talking about it. So you can simply join the conversation that they're already hearing from their friends or their teachers. So in that sense, it's an easy way to enter it and turn it into a teachable moment. Absolutely. But even that represents a shift um, or is reflective of a shift that certainly when when I was being raised, sort of like an attitude of, well, like I remember just so many of my friends like, oh, my parents never talked to me about that stuff. They were just always like, your friends will tell you about that. Like, what? <laughs> why would we want their friends who are like kind of, you know, 16 and kind of stupid? Like, why would you want them to be the ones to educate about important? But that was, you know, there was sort of like a point where that was sort of seen as the better way to do things. Let's let the friends just, you know, they'll all figure it out for themselves. Well, we all, we'll all make it to adulthood okay, more or less. Um, and now where there's- We all learn what we learn on the mean streets of Ramat Shemesh. Exactly. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but then to, to this sort of idea today that, no, I want to be, you know, I, I know my children, I want to have that open communication with them. I want to be the one that raises this with them at, at a point, you know, where where they can, you know, hear it from me at a point at, the, at that level that they can understand and grasp and process and come back to me with questions. And that's great. Okay. Let's move forward to protecting children. You already mentioned the very important idea- distinguishing between privacy and isolation. What is the most important thing or things that a parent needs to know about keeping their children safe from abuse and abusers? Trust your gut. I think what if does I that mean? To say one line, it means we have, we all have intuition. Our intuition, it's, it's a powerful tool. And sometimes it's the opposite, meaning this is not always the case. But if something feels off to you, let them deal with that. Um, and what I mean is, you know, and, and so often we avoid our intuition because we don't want to make a situation awkward. We don't want to make a situation uncomfortable. We have somebody really well-meaning in our lives who wants to do X, Y, Z for our children. And it's such a favor and it's so nice and it's such a chesed. And we don't want to be the killjoy and the like, you know, uh, eh, I don't want you to do that. That's not like, but there is a way. And, and we have to trust our instincts that Someone could be offering to do something, which is maybe on the one hand, in some ways, an objectively major favor, but and still realize this is not, no, this is not the way we do things in our family. We don't send children alone on overnights with their madrichim to go camping in the woods. Just not done. Not because we are 
being suspicious of the Madrid that he's going to do something to our son, but because we want our son to have the message that this is, we just don't do this. We just don't go alone. It's just not a situation that's necessary or something we do. There was one case that I, that I always think of, which I think is such a great illustration of this. And this actually happened in HMS. A couple of years ago, a woman had contacted me. Her son was being, uh, had been befriended by a man in the community in his like mid to late twenties. Um, it was very nice. Avre, who was like a nature enthusiast. And before anyone thinks they know who I'm talking about, there have been at least three very similar cases in the last couple of years in HMA. So don't be so sure. At least three. So, and he was like bringing him, this, her kid and his friends, he would bring them, he would bring them camping. He would bring them hiking. He had some pet animals that he would, or that he had like found in the woods that he would have them turtles and whatnot and come and hang out with. And it really started to raise a red flag for her when her son came home one day and he told her that he had been alone with this man, like in the guy's machsan with some of the animals that he had brought there for like a while. And then, and they were alone. And then when he got home and right away, his mother said, this is not, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. I don't really, I don't want you to be there alone. There's just no reason for that. And then an hour later, the guy called again and invited him to go out with him uh, to the woods that night. to like, look, again, the same day. Yes. The same day. And she was like, no, just, just no, it's enough. And she called me because she kind of felt, felt a little guilty. She felt a little, you know, she had been, I don't know if guilty is the right word, but a little nervous. Like, did I do the right thing? Did well, I? Well, here's did somebody I... who's taking an interest in her son, which if you put aside her gut feeling, that's great. Isn't this wonderful? Avreich, a good upstanding mm-hmm. person is taking interest in my son. You might think that's a good thing. I understand the guilt. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like the, well, I don't know if I, you know, he, so she, and she called around a little, she asked other parents, like, have you heard anything? And nope, no, everyone only heard good things about this guy. She called the Rav. The Rav, to his credit, agreed with her that it, this, he didn't think this was so appropriate, just the way that this, the, the extents of these, you know, relationship, but that he did not know anything or had not heard anything more, you know, more than, than this um, about this guy. Well, a year and a half later, no, a year later, police contacted me. They had arrested this man for rape of a 14-year-old boy in the community. And they believed strongly, they had several reasons to believe that there were additional victims and they wanted, it was a community that they knew that I had some access to and they wanted me to help them find some additional victims. And it was the same guy. And I called the mother and I told her and she was very emotional. In the end, were there additional victims whose testimony was admissible? Huh, it's a good question. I don't remember if they found additional victims to testify. They found one additional victim of a much more minor crime, you know, minor, so to speak. And I don't remember if in the end they found others. And her son was not a victim, though. No, thank God. She had shut she down. She trusted her gut. And it, yes, she trusted her gut. Um, she shut that. And she didn't say to him, you can never, ever see him again. But she said to him, you cannot be alone with him. And you cannot go out with him to the woods at night. And you cannot, like, she put some very strong limitations on the relationship. And she told the guy himself, she said to the man, I am not comfortable with my son. And you know what? If that guy was considering abusing her son, he sure as heck stopped then because he knew that she was, this was the mother that was going to find out. And this was the mother that was going to do something about it. So this guy, this kid is now, this is not going to be one of the kids that I'm going to abuse. That's often the, the, you know, if an offender has a choice of victims, which they do, unfortunately, usually um, they're going to choose the one that they think is the path of least resistance and is going to be the easiest for them to get away with. And that process where he was bringing him to this machsan at night, showing him his animals, but nothing happened. Is that what we would call grooming? Absolutely. Preparing him for whatever would come mm-hmm. in the future, getting him to yep. put his guard down. 
absolutely. There's I there see. are there's a process of grooming, and the first step of it is it's you know identifying the potential victim and and sort of creating that relationship and that trust and that and the need you know like the the sort of fulfilling needs that are going on. This kid is bored. I have fulfilled a need. He's now no longer bored. And then it sort of works through breaking the touch barriers and and then the abuse and then maintaining control over the child either through threats or through manipulation, you know, whatever, whatever, unfortunately, the case may be. Okay, so trust your gut. But on the other hand, the other parents either didn't have that same gut feeling or they didn't bother trusting it. And in going to the case of Chaim Valder, presumably people didn't have a negative gut feeling right. because so many people were able to come into contact with him. He wrote books and books of stories of kids who talk to him. So that can't be the only thing parents do. What else would you recommend to parents apart from trusting their gut? Absolutely. I think that that's where setting up certain boundaries, and I don't know if boundaries is really, I don't mean boundaries in the way that sometimes people think of boundaries, but just kind of boundaries in our in the structure of the way our kids lead their lives. The fact that they, we should know where they are at all times. If they go to a friend's house, and then they're going to go from that friend's house to another friend's house. We need to know about it. And I mentioned this because this is very popular in Israel, you know, Shabbos afternoon. Mm-hmm. This is kind of just the, the, the MO of, of every child. I'm going um, out. Sure. Just, yeah, they're going out and then they're going from house to house. And by the time they get home, they've been 15 places. And we have no idea where they were. It's sukkah hopping all year long. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I get the Shabbos party from that family and then that family and then that family. And that's all. And it's wonderful. But there should be, I, I'm a very big believer in rules where a child has to come home first and say, okay, I was here and I'm going here. Um, now you could also ask why, because what's the point? We all know that, you know, the vast, vast majority of sexual abuse is, is, is perpetrated by somebody known to the child. So what does it matter if they were in this house or this house? It's not like you're going to know if there's no, but you, but when your child knows that you are on top of where they are and who they're with, you're creating a dynamic for them, for their friends, that you're a parent that's, that's staying on top of the situation. You want to keep your finger on the pulse. If they come home and they're subdued and they're anxious, you know, at, at, you know, if you have no idea where they were all day, then you're sort of, you're, you've got a, got a double challenge now of, I don't even know where they were. And now I don't know why they're upset. And I don't know what's going on. If you know where they were at least. So, okay, that's the starting point of what happened and let's talk and, you know, sort of trying to, to open that up. But and again, but again, even uh, even more than that, it's just it's setting that tone, it's setting that dynamic with your child of I want to know what's going on with you. I'm I'm involved, and not to limit your independence. Let the kids they can go around to the friends' house all day. It's great, but we need to know where they are. And then, like I mentioned before, you know, not being alone in isolation with anyone, with not with their bar mitzvah tutor, and not with their regular tutor, and not with their madrich, and not with their therapist in a situation where they're isolated and there's nobody else around. When you talk about a kid coming home, looking subdued, being upset about something, but not talking, perhaps this is an unanswerable question, but can you explain to me why a child would want to hide something like that from his parents or her parents? I think, first of all, confusion. They just don't even really understand what happened this is not something they're familiar with. So what, where do they, how do they even process this? Is it possible if they think it's their own fault and therefore they feel absolutely. guilty about it? Yeah, absolutely. Guilt is a huge, huge factor. Um, they believe that it was their fault. The offender either told them or implied that it was their fault, um, which is something we we hear a lot. There's this concept of the like, like the, you know, in English, something between like thieves, like where the abuser brings them to their level. Like first they'll let them, let's say, 
watch a video on their phone. And this is a child that's not allowed to watch videos on smartphones. And they say, okay, well, now we watched the video on the phone and now we're going to do this. And the abuser abuses them and then says, well, don't tell anyone because you'll get in trouble for watching a video on my phone. And the child's mind, the child does not understand the vast difference between the quote unquote crime of watching a video on a smartphone that they weren't supposed to do and the crime of sexually abusing a child. In their mind, we both are rule breakers now. We're both going to get in trouble. I can't tell anyone about this. This happens, unfortunately, very, very frequently. The other option is that the child doesn't have the language. They don't know how to describe what happens. I've heard children who, when they finally did start to talk, said things like, that guy's really weird. There's a cheder that I'm dealing with recently in, in Jerusalem that has a teacher that has been abusing children there. And what keeps being described by the children is umshuga. That's how they just keep saying it. He's just crazy, crazy guy. And what does that mean? What is that? But that's it. That's the only words that they've got. They don't They're have the language for this. Yes, but they don't have any other context or language with which to to describe what this man is. Older children, I've heard like, you know, high school age, yeshiva age, where they refer to, and these are always like, these are sort of the like orange flags to me when I hear this language, little kids saying, or like teenagers saying, like he's, he's like a pervert or he's a, like, that's the, okay, they're, those are so often the words that are used. Now, that's not to say that anytime a kid calls an adult mishuga, that that means he's saying he's sexually Of course not. Right. Obviously. But that's so often the language that ends up being used because that's all they've got. That's, that's the only term they've got to kind of fall back on here. So that's what they're using. And so th that's an example of a child sort of trying to tell or thinking maybe that they're telling, but they're not really... They're not really saying anything. Sharing any useful information. Exactly. This is not something we can really do with or understand. Mm -hmm. um, but in their minds... They're, this is them putting it out there. Um, they don't, it's not Senua. They think their parents won't understand. I hear this a lot. They're totally, they think their parents are, you know, religious Senua people. So they're not going to understand anything about what they're describing. They think it's Lashon Hara. They think they'll get in trouble for tattletailing on somebody. Um, they think they won't be believed. I might've said that before, but I think it warrants mentioning again, because that's, that's a lot. Sure, they, a big they one, just yeah. don't believe yeah, who's going to believe me over this guy? And I've heard that abusers will often say that. If you tell anyone, yes. I'll deny it and they won't believe you anyway. Right, right. Or your parents will kill me and then they'll go to jail. I've heard that as well. Really? And that's also another reason. I, I recently had a, had a mother that, that called me. We, we spoke a number of times, um, very distraught and dealing with a lot of guilt. There had been abuse going on in her, in one of her children had been abused for a number of years. And she said, I had such an open home and I talked to my kids about abuse and I talked about it so much. But then she said to me, but I always told them that if anyone ever touched them, I would kill them. Meaning not the kids, I would kill the abuser. And the abuser was somebody that my child loved and was afraid that I would kill them. And they took it seriously. Therefore, for, yes, for years. And the mother was so devastated. She said, like, I thought I was doing all the right things. And I, and like, how could I have done this? And obviously there's so much, of, first of all, so many victims never tell. So if, you're, if your child is, is sharing something like this and then you're already so far ahead of the game, that means your child trusts you enough to, to share this. Even if a few years have gone by, they're sharing it. That's amazing. You're not, a, you are so not a failure of a parent. This, these things happen. They happen in wonderful families. They happen in families where parents are well-meaning and really trying their best. Um, you can't be everywhere at all times. Your eye, you're not advised in the back of your head. Um, and even if you did, your child's not always behind you or in front of you. Right. We can only do the best we can and Davin and, and as I said, you know, trust our instincts and try to set up as many of these boundaries and, and structures in our lives as possible. Let's talk about warning signs. 
now we're no longer talking about preventing it. We're talking about a child who comes home and there's something which doesn't seem right. Apart from gut feeling, what are warning signs? You said the word mishuga, saying that he's weird, he's crazy, or he's, he's a pervert. What other things should a parent look for? Or if they see them, should they perhaps take action? So we did, we've started differentiating when we do our workshops for parents. We differentiate between what we call yellow flags and red flags. And I think that's, well, I'll explain in a minute why I think that's important. What we call yellow flags are really any dramatic shift um, in, or even not so dramatic shift in the child's behavior, in their eating habits, in their toilet going habits, their wetting the bed. Um, again, when they haven't in a while, they are either very subdued when they used to previously be more outgoing or they're very wild, you know, kind of suddenly where they were previously subdued. They're same uncomfortable in social situations where they weren't previously. Um, they're avoiding certain people or avoiding people in general, you know, any kind of shifts that we see really in a child's behavior. But the reason we call those yellow flags, those, I know that there are many organizations and educators that call those things red flags because they are flags and the term is usually red flags. The problem is that those behaviors can be a result of so many things in a child. It could have life. nothing could to do with the abuse. Baby. Exactly. There could be a baby in the, a new baby in the family. There could be, um, the child could be being bullied in school. Um, they could have, you know, had a fight with a close friend um, that really is, is upsetting them. In other words, it's a red flag for something, but it's only a yellow flag right. when it comes to abuse. Exactly. Right, right. So it's certainly something you want to check out because whatever it is, your child's clearly struggling or suffering in some way. And we want to know what that is, whether it's abuse or something else. Um, so that's, you know, there. In terms of the red flags, a child either acting out or describing or drawing or playing, uh, sort of imitating any kind of sexual acts or behaviors is certainly a red flag because a, ch- a child does not know of this kind of behavior or activity unless they've been exposed to it. You're talking about a child before puberty. A child before puberty or even a child after puberty where it's not in a way that's age appropriate, like something more extreme. Mm-hmm, okay. Um, obviously, the child has been exposed to something which was not not age appropriate, not appropriate period. And the child, you know, there needs to be some sort of intervention or tracking what happens here. It might not be abuse in the physical contact. I mean, it could be, unfortunately, their phone. We don't know. Exactly. It could be exposure to pornography, which I will say is a crime. Exposing a child to pornography, assuming an adult did this intentionally, that is a crime. Absolutely. And that's something we want to know, because that's also can be very traumatic for a child to come across content that they are not mentally and emotionally mature enough to handle, process, understand. But those are definitely red flags. Um, and then as well, of course, would be, you know, physical, any sort of physical symptoms of, of some sort of abuse. That's whether it's bruises or marks where there should not be. Um, that would, of course, be a red flag as well. OK, the next step after this is to say when a parent sees either a yellow flag or a red flag, what's the next step? What should that parent do? So first of all, if it's a yellow flag, talk to your children. I mean, always talk to your children, but talk to your children. I, I had a mother call me recently. And she described to me, very distraught, she described to me that her six-year-old son had been playing with her two-year-old daughter. And at some point, like he was lying on top of her and he was making some weird movements that sort of seemed like maybe he was sort of simulating a sort of sexual action, um, sort of. But the way she described, like, and I said, did you ask him why he was doing that? And she said, no, am I allowed? And I said, are you allowed to ask him why he's, doing something. And she was like, I just, I didn't know if I'm like supposed to ask him, if I'm allowed to ask him. I said, you're his mother. You're not going to ask him who is like, 
you can ask him whatever you want. <laughs> his mother. Um, but she needed that validation of you are allowed to ask your child, why are you doing this weird thing? And this was not, now I, I do want to differentiate. And the reason she might've been confused about this is because what we do tell parents is that if there's a red flag, and what I mean by that is like a real reason to believe that this child has been abused, not that something is going on in their life and something shifting. So we want to, we need to talk it out, but that there's actual abuse taking place. You want to involve a professional because parents can, unfortunately this happens often, can inadvertently um, really mess with a a sort of the questioning of the child by a professional by speaking to them first and asking sort of closed-ended questions as opposed to open-ended questions where they end up confusing the child with the details. Basically, if I understand properly, Shana, you're saying they're already sort of framing the narrative in a certain way, which the child then accepts. Yes. Yes. Saying, you know, where the child starts, where the child is describing some sort of abuse and the parent starts panicking and goes, did this happen on Shabbos? Was it Shabbos afternoon? Was it in the basement? Was it with cousin so-and-so? Like they're introducing details into the narrative that were not there before. The child never said anything about Shabbos afternoon. The parent is saying that because they are in a panic trying to sort of ascertain. And that's what we do when we think we're oh, maybe, you know, your mind starts racing and you're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe it was that afternoon and you were on your way back from the hug and you were, don't do that. Those are the things you absolutely should not do. Um, it can be very detrimental for the child, for the hakira, if there does end up needing to be um, some sort of law enforcement involvement. So that we want to avoid. But there's a huge difference between that and saying, okay, my child is clearly struggling with something. Let's talk it out. Of course you should do that. You're their parent. That's what, like, if they don't have you to do that, then who do they have? That's super important. And um, absolutely, you have every permission as a parent to do that, granted by me and anybody else. Aside from talking to your child, and if you said if there's a red flag, seeking out a professional to help sure. you, what other things should a parent do? At what point, often as you mentioned, a child may not want to talk about it or has nothing really to say that's articulate. At what point does a parent seek out an organization like Magain or one of the other organizations that deal with this? I mean, first of all, a, a parent is welcome to seek us out at any point. Even that, that call from that mother, you know, I'm, I'm saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I love getting that phone call because... That's somebody who's being super proactive. And trust me, nothing makes us happier, any of our team, than getting phone calls from parents where they're not describing a tragedy, but they just wanna, they wanna prevent one. And that's amazing. That's so great. They can, you know, reach out to us and organizations at any point, just to like Lithiaites. As far as when you really need intervention, well, first of all, I, I always tell parents that I really suggest that they offer them, and this doesn't even just have to be in response to something wrong with my child, but even just from the get-go, when you're talking to your children in a general sense, communicating, give them the option of other adults, other safe adults in their life that they can always talk to, especially when you're talking about like preteens and teens. It is very normal and reasonable that a 13, 14 year old boy or girl are not going to be comfortable discussing certain topics, whether it's anything related to, to, to puberty or their sexuality or, or abuse of any kind with their parent. Even if they have a wonderful relationship with their parent, there might be certain things that they don't want to discuss with their parent. But you know what? Maybe they have an aunt or uncle that they're close with. Maybe they've got a grandparent that they're close with. Great. Wonderful. We don't need to be the only safe adults in our children's lives. It is fantastic if our children are being raised with a, you know, sviva that is that is supportive and and sort of contributing to their growth, their emotional and their physical development. It's wonderful. So let your children know that you will certainly not be offended if there's ever anything they want to talk to another adult in their life about another safe adult that they've chosen. That's something that you totally can put out there. And I think it's wonderful. It's, you know, there's everything positive about that. 
And then, so if you really feel that something happened to the child and the child is very resistant to talking about it, I would first encourage the child to think of another person that they could talk to, that there's, it is important, you know, sometimes we have secrets, things happen to us that are really, that feel like a secret that are really uncomfortable, that are upsetting us. It's really important to put it out there. Find an adult, like let's, we can think together of an adult that you feel comfortable with that you can talk to and really try to help your child find an address, even if it's not you. If it's clear that there's, that this is like, that's still not working and there's something still going on. I would say that therapy might be an option to try. Sometimes it's a matter of time. Sometimes it really is a matter of needing some time. The child is just not ready yet, needs a little time, but I wouldn't let that go for too long. Well, also you, you can be afraid that it'll happen again. We still don't know necessarily what it is. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. So you do want to be on top of it, but we also don't want to be like sort of forcing, you know, I've heard therapists say that sometimes you've got parents who the child was abused, the child discloses it, it's dealt with, and now they want the child to go to therapy and the child is very resistant to going to therapy. I don't believe in pushing children and most therapists don't believe in really pushing children to go to therapy because it's, it's sort of, first of all, it's the opposite of empowering. Like you had your, you know, your power, your decision-making, your autonomy stripped away from you by the abuser. And now we are forcing you into a room to sit and talk to someone about your innermost feelings. No, it's just not, you know, but definitely putting it out there that the option is available to them at any point. And, and then bringing it up every few months. Remember you had spoken to someone briefly. I know you didn't want to then, but do you ever want to now totally available to you just that they should know because that does change and evolve for children. Often they may not want to at a certain point, but then later on, starts to shift for them mentally, and then they do. At what point in a parent's suspicion, when he or she is figuring out what's going on, should they go to the police? Once there is, well, in legal terms, it's called a, a, a reasonable suspicion that a child has been abused. It's difficult because that's, and then I'm describing the chovati vuach, like when do you, you man, is it mandatory to report? Um, also, chovati vuach is a little tricky because it's really only in situations where the abuser was somebody in some sort of position of authority. Chovati vuach meaning when it's mandatory to actually, when you mandatory have to go to the police to at that point. Yes, yes, right. So reasonable suspicion is, can be a you know, gray area question for some people. Like what, what is a reasonable suspicion? But it, it's that point where a reasonable person would look at the scenario and say, I think this child's being abused. So that's, that's where that is. As far as when they can, I mean, first of all, I want to differentiate between the police and Merkaz Haganah. The police in Israel have what's, what's called Merkaz Haganah, which is uh, safety centers sort of all over the country. I think there's six, of, six or seven of them in total um, in all the different Izorim. And they are, I haven't been in all of them, but the few that I've been in are beautiful, beautiful, lovely places, very, very welcoming to the child and very child friendly. And there they have social workers. They're, they're trauma trained child social workers who are also trained by the police in forensic interviewing techniques. And they're the ones that interview children. And they're the experts at this. So you can always call them up. You can call us up. You can call them up. Sometimes people will call us and we'll call them up and say like, here's the situation should I bring my child in to be questioned? Now, if you bring the child in, the social worker talks to them, the child doesn't disclose anything or discloses something which is not a crime. That's it. Pull the setter, you go home. Yeah, that's it. Um, if you go in and the child discloses abuse, then the social worker then passes that file on to the police and then a criminal investigation would begin. So they're a resource and they're, they're a resource that is sometimes really worth using. And I've had parents who suspected abuse but really weren't sure what happens. Um, bring their children to Merkaz Haganah to try to get some help with, uh, you know, talking talking to them. In general, in Israel, is your experience that the police are helpful in these matters and the Merkaz Haganah is a helpful place? Ah, so 
Merkaz Haganah, yes. Um, the police, it's it's really very mixed because the police are, well, the truth is all the government offices in this country are notoriously overworked, underpaid, as uh, often in bureaucratic uh, situations. And there's a tremendous omess of, of cases and you have to really work to keep your case at the top of the pile or at least not dropping to the bottom of the pile. Um, we've, I've known of cases that were reported and then just sat there at someone's desk for like months and months and months and months until anyone really worked on it. Um, and that's obviously very damaging to the victim in terms of their confidence in reporting and in this process um, and and extremely harmful to the community that still has, right. the, still has the abuser in its midst. Right. Exactly. So that's I, I can't say that it's, you know, that the situation is fantastic. But I, I will say that the situation is certainly much, much better when you go with an advocate. It's important to know your rights. I don't recommend that people just march to the police station without any sort of preparation. Nobody is prepared for this. Parents are not we don't get a we don't get a handbook when our child is born, and if we did, I don't. I it probably wouldn't even include this. But like, what do you do? What, how do you what, how do you deal with a police investigation? That's not like just something that everybody knows. Speak to someone. Speak to an organization. Speak to an advocate. Bring someone with you if you can. But definitely, I do believe in, in making that report because sometimes there are so many cases that the majority of cases in this country get closed. Sexual abuse cases get closed by the prosecutor's office because there's just not enough evidence for them to, you know, meet the burden of proof needed to to move forward uh, with a prosecution. So if you do report the case, there is there is a likelihood, and it's a high likelihood that the case might be that will be closed if there's not enough evidence. But if you don't report it, then there's a 100% case that a, a situation, you know, the case is not going to be prosecuted because there's no way it can be because they don't know about it. And the more people report, you know, obviously it's much more likely they're going to be able to prosecute a case when there's multiple victims coming forward as opposed to one. There's more like it's likely there's going to be more evidence, um, more testimony. So get get that information out there, put it in the hands of the authorities. But I do encourage, you know, victims whenever they go to the police and parents to make sure that they have their expectations be set sort of at a reasonable level. I'm not doing this because I believe that this is going to result in him necessarily in the offender going to jail for 20 years. That may not happen, but I am doing my part. I'm putting this out there. I'm putting it into the hands of the people that, that should be dealing with it. And I'm taking this very brave step, sort of meaning don't just see the police report as a means to an end, although it is that as well, we hope but also as an end to itself of, I have told the truth to the authorities. Like I have, I have taken this really brave and important step of sitting down in front of law enforcement and telling them the truth. And that is, you know, and now I have, I have met that goal so that if the case does get closed, which it might be at least for now, until there's more evidence, mm-hmm. I don't feel devastated by the fact that, oh my God, this is because they didn't believe me. This is because it's not, it's not that, that's not why it's just this, unfortunately is the system that we have to work with. Okay, Sean, I have one last question before we close. Is there anything that parents commonly do, well-meaning good parents commonly do, that is a big mistake when it comes to the matters of either preventing or addressing sexual abuse of their kids? First of all, well, I mean, I mentioned one before, you know, telling your child that you will, if anybody ever touches them or that you'll kill them, that is really, that's a mistake. Um, And it's not really conducive for the child and what the child needs to hear to feel safe, which is, I understand the reason why parents say it, of course. The parents think they're making their child feel safe, right. but in fact, they're not. Exactly. I would do anything for you. It's very, mm-hmm. it's very dramatic. It's a bold statement. It's not really what the child needs, you know, needs to hear um, to have that reassurance. I think parents that are really open with their kids, sometimes there's a, this isn't really just parents, but in general, there's when talking to children, there's sort of this crossover between talking about healthy sexuality and sexual abuse. 
um, where like it's just two, they're two sides of the same coin. And one of this is healthy sexuality and this is unhealthy sexuality. That's not what this is. And it, and it sends a very harmful message to our children about sexuality in general. Um, when we present it that way, sexual abuse is about power and control. It unfortunately uses some of the same body parts or activities as actual sexual behavior, but it's not about that. Um, it is about controlling somebody who is vulnerable. And that's important in order to keep that in mind as we're trying to raise kind of healthy children emotionally and develop, you know, developmentally speaking to not kind of conflate these, these things too much. There are, there are probably a few more, <laughs> but those are, I think, the top two that I can no, that's, think of right I now. I really appreciate that. Okay, Shauna, this has been a very difficult episode, but I think very, very important for everyone to hear. So once again, I thank you for joining me on the podcast, and hopefully parents will get a lot out of this and be able to do their best to prevent abuse from happening in the first place. And if, God forbid, there is abuse, now they'll have a better handle on what they should do next. So thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Sure. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.